From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. I mean, there's so many great books that focus on vegetables because we all want to eat more of them. there. I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks, and you just heard from today's guest, Amy Chaplin. She's a native of Australia, but Amy has spent her career traversing the globe as a chef, London, Amsterdam, Sydney, and New York, where she was previously the executive chef of Angelica Kitchen, the highly celebrated vegan restaurant. Now, Amy's first cookbook, At Home in the Whole Food Kitchen, celebrating the art of eating well, wowed readers and critics alike, and took home the James Beard Award in 2015. And now she's back with her latest, Whole Food Cooking Every Day, Transform the Way You Eat, with 250 vegetarian recipes free of gluten, dairy, and refined sugar. In today's show, we're talking with Amy about how her food views were shaped early on in a family that prioritized growing their own food, about how she approaches recipes today and her whole food style of cooking, and of course, what cookbooks have inspired her. So let's head now to our studio inside the Civic Kitchen Cooking School in San Francisco, where Amy Chaplin joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Amy. How are you? Hi, good. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. We're thrilled to have you and we're here to talk about your life, your work, um, but you're here in town because you just published your second cookbook. Um, am, am I right? This is your second? Yeah, that's yes. right. Okay. I wanted to make sure I wasn't missing one. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, whole Food Cooking Every Day, which we'll come back to. We'll come back to this book and to your other book. But I want to start first by talking about you and sort of how you came to food. So you were actually born, I believe, in New South Wales. Australia. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And grew up there. And food was sort of a presence for you very early on in your life, right? You lived, um, your parents sort of grew everything that you ate. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. I mean, we lived sort of so far from any convenient kind of restaurants or food stores. Um, they had to be really organized. So they ordered a lot of bulk items and baked bread, kept bees, made tofu, all of that. And we grew all our own vegetables just because of the choices. I mean, there were an hour and a half's drive away. You could go to a store and we okay. would buy vegetables too. But day to day was picking things out of the garden and cooking them. Yeah. And you were involved in that process pretty early on, right? Like you were involved in the beekeeping and the gardening, all of that as a yeah. kid. Yeah. We used to run around screaming with bees in our hair <laughs> yeah. and sticky with honey. Yeah. If you call that helping. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but um, yeah, we were involved in everything because um, my parents built the house that, that I grew up in uh-huh. and um, it was, you know, with handmade. I've said this a few times. I don't know why it keeps coming up, but it's sort of an unusual, we made the mud bricks and sun dried them and built the house with them. Yeah. So it was like we were, and we were in the mud pit you know, that was kind of fun yeah. for us as kids. <laughs> right. Yeah. So you as kids were actually helping make the bricks yeah. for the house yeah. Yeah, out of mud. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um And I, you write in the book um, that the, a weekly high point for you was helping your dad make bread too. So you were really sort of involved in, not only in the, the growing of food and, and making of honey and all of that, but actually what was your experience like in the kitchen too? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I guess when you're making three meals a day, uh, you can't, and you don't have childcare. Right. I mean, you're going to be involving the children. Right. You know, you have to, to keep an eye on them probably. But I also, um, 
I used to just get really excited because he'd give me a bit of dough and I'd make my own little roll and I'd put like nuts and raisins in it and uh-huh. cut it up and cook it. You know, we just did just fun things like that. Like I, I would get out books and we'd often make a cake or, you know, my sister and I would choose which cakes to do. And yeah, and she was really into baking. In fact, she was going to be the chef. And, uh, okay. <laughs> and I was thinking about other things, but yeah, but we still, yeah, we were very into baking and cooking and. I mean, everything we ate was made by us or our neighbors. Sure. Yeah. And so you said your sister was going to maybe be the chef. What age is this and what are you sort of thinking you might do with your life? Well, I was into being an actress. This was a bit, uh, this was like maybe 10, 11, maybe even 9, 10, 11. And she sort of had all these fancy chef cookbooks at okay. some point people would give those to her and um but is this now, older sister younger younger okay. and now we're both in food i mean she does okay. front of house and opens restaurants and things in new york as well sure okay but um yeah we both ended up in food yeah <laughs> and now my father's actually selling bread at the moment so oh okay <laughs> so the whole family <laughs> he, he's yeah. sell- baking and selling his own yeah, bread now sourdough with his with his wife yeah they, oh, they have awesome. a market stall and yeah, so it's kind of taken off. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a true foodie family, but you didn't really realize at the time sort of no. how maybe, I think it's fair to say how unique sort of your experience was as a child of really being able to produce everything that you were eating. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, not every, not grains and things. I mean, they, right. they, they grew what they could there. Uh-huh. And it's, um, and also had to really nourish the soil. It's pretty dry in parts. I mean, it's sort of fertile, but it's like, you know, it, there's a lot of drought as well. Yeah. Um, but they had a biodynamic garden. So that really, you can just sort of tell like now, even though no one's gardening full time there now, but, um, it, it was very, very fertile and it's, it's very lush around sure. where the house is. Yeah. yeah. So I think you went and got a job, um, when you were young as uh, at a cafe, right? In Sydney, was that sort of your first exposure to working in food professionally? Yes, except my mother and her friend and different friends of hers actually um, used to cater sometimes okay. and it would help. Sure. And then they'd have a lot of big parties and things because we were sort of out of the way. So people would come and visit and stay over and we were always helping like make all the daiquiris. <laughs> okay. Um, for the party <laughs> yeah. it was the 80s, right? So sure, everyone yeah. drank daiquiris then. <laughs> right. Um, and so we, we, my sister and I would be involved in that and tasting them, of course. Um, and and then her another friend of hers opened a, a restaurant in a small town nearby. And so I was around that. I wasn't really working in it though. Okay. So I was a teenager when I got a job in a cafe in Sydney and I was sort of just making coffee and waiting the tables. And then a friend of mine or I became friends with the chef and, and I would help when they were too busy. And then it was like suddenly they didn't have a chef and then they were saying, can you cook? And I was kind of thrown in. Really. Yeah. But because I was always cooking, it didn't feel, and it was small, it was busy, but it was small. I didn't feel like, oh, I'm in a professional kitchen. I mean, it was a very small cafe and that made great food though. Sure. So. And when you stepped into that job at the cafe, were you sort of thinking you were going to go down a career path related to food or was that Not sort then. of falling into place? Yeah, unbeknownst no, to you? That was sort of like, this is a job I could do. Uh huh. Um, anywhere. I was just dying to travel and yeah. oh, okay. I was planning to go and live in Paris and I still wanted to be an actress. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> Do you still want to be an actress? No. no okay. <laughs> definitely not. Like at all. Like I got rid of that very quickly actually. Okay. But, but at that point it was just sort of a means to travel and work and save money and keep, you know, I was just dying to leave Australia and go to Europe. It was just like, it's so far away and it's yeah. so, I don't know. It's such a, it was such a big trip then too. Now I feel like. Australians travel all the time, but they do stay away because it is a big trip. 
right. to get out. So right. I felt like I was wanting to, you know, go and live in other places. It wasn't really traveling so much and moving around. It was like go and experience life in other other cities. Yeah. And you did, right? I mean, yeah. you, I think did you the first place you go is Amsterdam. is Amsterdam, right? Yeah. And you're working in another cafe or restaurant there. I think it's a Japanese a Japanese macrobiotic restaurant. Yeah, I uh-huh. like I got there and I was like, okay, well, I didn't really want to backpack around Europe. I just sort of wanted to live there and see what it was like. And then within two weeks, I got this job there. And someone was actually asking me last night at Omnivore Books, but uh-huh. that you know, I. I needed a job and I went to the Cushy Institute, which was like a macrobiotic center. Okay. Michio Cushy founded. And I was like, oh, I want to get a job. I didn't really want to study there, but I wanted to kind of learn, but work. And um, they said, oh, you should go to Shizen, which is this Japanese restaurant. And I went there and there was a lot of um, macrobiotic chefs working there and Japanese cooks. So it's like real, it was one of the best restaurants I've ever eaten in still to this day. It's yeah. like home cooked Japanese, small scale. Yeah. I mean, healing food, just absolutely delicious. And you say healing and, and you say it's a macrobiotic restaurant. For listeners who might not know about that concept or what that word means, can you sort of break that down for us? Well, it really, it's sort of a philosophy of eating that is not trendy. <laughs> it's based on, you know, they eat a lot of grains. It used to be like 70% grains. I think then it went down to 50%. Okay. But um, it's all plant-based, but no, a lot of macrobiotic People eat fish and you can incorporate meat. It's just about balancing yin and yang. And so each food has a different energy. And, um, it's really though founded by Japanese people. So it's uh-huh. based on really good Japanese home cooking, which is sea vegetables, right. grains, beans, vegetables, some nuts and seeds, not a whole lot of oil and a bit of seafood if, you know, and sometimes an egg here and there. Uh-huh. But this, this you know, had a little bit of Dutch influence, but it okay. had a lot of yeah. Japanese food. And every meal of the day was a bento box that was like, you know, grains cooked in different ways, beans, very simple. Um, but, but it was a restaurant, so they would have a little bit of tempura and, you know, they had a whole lot of desserts to serve as well that were all vegan desserts. Sure. And so that's where I started actually, because I was cooking on my days off. I just cook because I didn't have a whole lot of friends there. I just cook for the people I lived with and, and my friends. And so I would just get inspired by what I saw in these, these staff meals. They were just so inspiring to me and they could tell that I was asking a lot of questions and said, do you want to come into the kitchen? And so this right. Japanese lady gave me a one lesson on agar and kuzu and how to use them. And okay. then I was like, right. And I started experimenting. Of course, the first few times were a little bit disastrous. But then I got into a rhythm and people started coming for the desserts and talking about them. They were selling out every night. And I was yeah. like, then that was when I realized it was spring long time ago in the 90s sometime okay but spring and i remember feeling really inspired in the kitchen it was like early in the morning and i just thought wow this is like i just felt so creative yeah and free because they just gave me free reign i had the keys to the kitchen no one else was there and i could make whatever i wanted right it sounds like a very great exposure to like working as a chef yeah (laughs) i I know because i think about people now and it's like you know, we all did our own dishes, though. There wasn't a dishwasher. It was uh-huh. a very different system. It wasn't really like the – it wasn't at all traditional. Sure. And none of the kitchens I've worked in are really, honestly. Like, I didn't really – I mean, but I did learn a lot there about, like, we – we for hours, we'd hand-cut daikon, you know, going around and around right. like, you know, a roll of paper. Right. And then we'd thinly slice it. And then nothing was done by machine. Right. And I hated it. I was like, oh, my God, this is so <laughs> hard. I'd be sweating and, like, you know. And so, I had to really – 
it was a very zen kind of experience. Like, yeah. you really had to just sit there for hours doing this. But you just wanted a food processor. <laughs> no, I just thought, oh, my God. Like, it was, it was really handmade food. But they're right. all sort of into the energy of things and, yeah. you know, the, like the, the electrical stuff and everything was made by hand. So, it was yeah. really beautiful. Yeah. But – and it, that was my sort of training of knife skills, I guess. Right. Because I hadn't had a cooking class in my life. And actually, this um, Japanese lady came. She's passed away now. She's quite well known. It was Herman Nahira's wife. Anyway, he's okay. like big in the macrobiotic community. And he and she gave a cooking class and I took that. Um, you know, but I've had very few in my life. I mean, right. you know, just, just by chance. It's not like there haven't been great ones around, but, but I took a class with her and I, yeah, I stayed there two years, which was quite a long time. I yeah. thought. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then, then you sort of become a private chef. Is that right? Is that, well, or am then, I condensing things a lot here? Yeah. We can, we can skip over yeah, some things, okay. but, but I worked in a bakery as well okay. and they actually mm-hmm. brought me in to make vegan, um, some vegan and, you know, um, healthier versions and they were right. doing a lot of French and, and Italian patisserie and Dutch apple tarts and things like that. Uh-huh. And so I, that was sort of like, a, we did catering and stuff from there. And also a very creative experience because they kind of let me do my thing. Right. And then I moved to London to open a restaurant with the same friend that I'd met in that cafe in Sydney. Okay. And she's an amazing cook. And she said, I just want to have a restaurant. Like, now's the time. You could move in with me, blah, blah, blah. So, I moved over there after four years in Amsterdam. And we never had a restaurant. We did all this work towards one business plan and everything. And we ended up catering and because uh-huh. we were, we had this great situation with a kitchen and, and built in people coming for weddings and events and things. Sure. And so I did that for another four years. So okay. I also worked in some restaurants in London and yeah, did a lot of different things, but, yeah. but catering was sort of like the overarching thing that happened. And we were just like, this is good. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. why, why are we trying to get, you know, get a space and investors right. and everything? Right. Makes sense. And then when did you decide to write your first cookbook and how did that come about? Um, which is at home in the whole food kitchen, which won a James Beard award. Yeah. And that was published how, five years ago. 2014. Yeah. Five, five years, years ago. Okay. Yeah, to, yeah. Yeah. Five years. I know that went quick. Um, yeah. so I guess back then I, I wasn't writing a thing down, um, uh. for, for, eight years I didn't write anything okay. down like all that cooking I did I mean I did a little bit when I first started because and I took photographs of my food sure. in Amsterdam but um I or you know always dreamed about having a cookbook and moved to New York worked as a personal chef worked at Angelica Kitchen and thought about it a lot and was going right. to help them write a second book at Angelica and um, and Angelica is a really established vegan restaurant, am I right? Yes, that's now closed, sadly. Now closed. But it was around for 40 years. It was one of the first yeah. ones in the US. It was farm to table and uh-huh. you know, very unusual. Um, and I left there in 2010. I worked there for seven years, actually. And then I just was like, yeah, I really want to do my own book. And I was teaching and working privately and freelance and things. And I don't know what happened. I just was like, right. I mean, now's the time Mm -hmm. and put my foot down to myself, I guess, and got an agent. And so you wrote, you you just decided I'm going to write a book. You weren't just writing to capture your recipes. You decided I'd like to make a book. Yeah. Well, I mean, I had then through since moving here, like 20 years ago, I did start recording stuff. I had to at Angelica. I had to make 10 cakes over and Uh over, you know, and and I was developing things and training other people. So I really had to get it together. Right. (laughs) So I was really hopeless (laughs) at measuring anything. I still, you know, struggle with that. But, um, So, yeah, so then I focused on – then I got an agent and then we started working out, like, what is it, you know, and um, I got to work with Roost and mm-hmm. the, the – uh, my edit. well, 
yeah, my editor, Sarah, she really just saw in me, I think through my blog, I'd started a blog in 2009 okay. or, or something. And so she really just said, I just want you to write your book. Like stop trying to shape it into something that it can be. Cause I, I found that hard too, to think of like a concept for the book, you know, right. I didn't really know what that was. And she said, I think you should just write your book your way. And I was like, great. And yeah. so I really felt free again yeah. to, to just do what, what I wanted to do. And I just poured in everything that I felt was the, the best out of my whole life, really. Yeah. That's, that's a great, that's what you want to hear an editor say, right? right. You write I your know. book I your was way. Really lucky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She was really supportive. And I think she just loved my food and felt like it was very celebratory, which is why it's got that subtitle celebrating the art of eating well. And sure. Yeah. And both titles share the term whole food. So can we talk about your approach to cooking? You, you have a whole food approach to cooking. What does that mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, honestly, whole food doesn't mean vegan or vegetarian. It just means good whole ingredients that haven't been messed with too much. Right. Um, and that's the way I like to approach everything from desserts to breakfast to everything, you know, that you're using true whole grains, beans, nuts, seeds, and a whole lot of vegetables. And yeah. it do- like I was saying last night, it doesn't mean it's good. <laughs> you know, that it's all whole. You know, you don't, it depends what you do with it, right? Right. But it's, it's, I think it's already a head start when you have great ingredients, of course. Sure. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, it's a little bit more challenging when you decide to make things out of 100% whole grains. You know, often breads have half refined right. grains in them. I mean, most whole wheat bread isn't truly whole wheat. Right. So, so I really started looking at that and that was through my experience with food as medicine and, you know, learning from people like Paul Pitchford who uh-huh. wrote, you know, healing with whole foods. And, right. and he was really got me thinking about like oils and, and sweeteners and really, you know, what is whole? Yeah. 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 Were there things that surprised you in that process of thinking about your approach to cooking or things that you really were sort of like aha moments for you that you could then put into your books? Right. Um, yeah, I feel, yeah, I felt like it was a good, um, restriction in a way because uh-huh. there's just so many things you can make yeah. always, right? So for sure. me, I'm actually happy to cut it down to first vegetarian. I don't feel restricted at all by that. And then seasons and then also deciding you are just doing 100% whole grain. So how do you make that cake to be delicious and light, you know, not right. heavy and, you know, you know, what are the, the tricks you use without adding any junk or, right. you know, anything refined? So yeah. it, it is more challenging, but it, but I love a challenge. So it just <laughs> makes you be more creative. I mean, honestly. Good. Well, we're going to come back to our game in a little bit where we're oh, going to, we're going to challenge you. <laughs> we'll be right back with the second half of our conversation with Amy Chaplin, author of Whole Food Cooking Every Day. Every Tuesday on Salt and Spine, we love sitting down with another of your and my favorite cookbook authors to tell the stories behind cookbooks. From Jacques Pepin and Nigella Lawson to Samin Nosrat and Alison Roman to today's guest, Amy Chaplin, Salt and Spine is the leading podcast featuring in-person interviews with your favorite authors. Plus, we publish delicious and exclusive recipes, hold cookbook giveaways for listeners like you, host incredible live shows, and so much more. Salt and Spine truly brings cookbooks to life, and we can only do it thanks to listeners like you. You can join the Salt and Spine community today to support our effort to bring you top-notch interviews and the best cookbook content starting at just $2 a month. Find out more and join the Salt and Spine community at patreon.com backslash salt and spine. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com backslash salt and spine. 
Salt and Spine is proud to have storytelling partners like Edible San Francisco. In the current issue, hear from three women, Lenora Estrada of Three Babes Bake Shop, Janelle St. Jean of Pietisserie, and Elizabeth Simon of Revenge Pies on how they're speaking out on behalf of women and minority-owned businesses, building up their operations, and paying it forward to their communities. Subscribe now to ensure that you're not missing any compelling stories on how San Francisco eats at EdibleSanFrancisco.com. And now back to our conversation with Amy Chaplin, author of Whole Food Cooking Every Day. So your your newest book is Whole Food Cooking Every Day. And the format of this book then is you've sort of built it around these base recipes. Um, how did you decide to format it in this way where you have base recipes that then you offer some suggested variations of, but really also sort of like open the door for people to variate as they please. Yeah. It sort of came about from a few things, but I found myself and a lot of readers of my first book really inspired by the group photographs of Uh of tarts or dips or, Uh and it's something about all the colors and all the possibility that you see. Right. And, and that was one of the first photographs that I did in the book was the tarts. And I felt like in that chapter, I was teaching people, you know, how to use agar and arrowroot and these things that make vegan cake tarts right. good. And so I felt like I wanted people to be able to use this crust with that filling and add that topping and, you know, mix and match kind of thing. And I, and then when the book came out and I didn't have room to, go on and on in there, but, the, sure. but, and I've got to restrict that sometimes. But, <laughs> but when the book came out, I just noticed people are, you know, they make recipes their own, don't they? They just experiment, they add things, they say based on this, inspired by whatever. And I really just saw them have a life of their own, yeah. which is sort of what I wanted. But then a lot of people don't take it further. They just follow the recipes and then they want more recipes. But, you know, I didn't want to just have another recipe book with where I've put everything that I cook in there pretty much. Almond, right. There's nut butters, there's almond milks, there's grains, there's all the things there, right. really. But then I was like, well, how can you make a book that's, you know, useful to people? And and then I realized these base recipes like that almond milk, anyone creative can take that anywhere with any nut, and I say that. But here I really spelt it out and showed 20 different variations of infusing them this way and adding this afterwards and combining right. nuts and adding coconut and da, 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 it goes on and on and on. Right. So instead of just having a nut milk recipe, you have a whole bunch. And I also wanted it not to be vague about add this, use this, try sweet potato, try squash. It's kind of, I find that a bit vague, even though I do cook, I sort of think, well, exactly what do you mean (laughs) (laughs) yeah so here i really spell it out so every recipe is there's a there's a base and then there's variations not just listed as ideas they're actually written out as recipes yeah which i think in makes it more accessible right is that something you were thinking about just in terms of like from teaching from teaching classes i realized like when you're in person with someone, you can say, do this same method with any vegetable. Right. And it will be a good pureed vegetable soup. And right. that's a great infusion of vegetables into your diet daily. Uh-huh. And they keep five days. You can freeze them, four or five days. You can freeze them, that kind of thing. And I have people that I've taught that one-on-one to, and they still do it. And I thought, okay, I need to have a whole chapter on soups like this. There's no stock. There's like five or six ingredients. Uh-huh. You can add this, add that change all the flavors to be any flavor you want. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, you can say it in the head note of a recipe, right? Like this cauliflower soup can be any vegetable soup, but it, it doesn't carry the same sort it's of It's harder for lesson. people. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Because with some starchier vegetables, you need more water. With uh-huh. watery ones, you need less. Like with zucchini, you end up taking out water and that's taking out flavor. And so I really right. broke it down and we'd had a zucchini base and a cauliflower base and a squash base and a root vegetable base. Right. <laughs> Try not to go on and on for too long. Sure. But also in the introduction of every chapter, there's, there's what you're looking for, what you can add, the texture, the flavor. You know, right. so so that it, you really, you these are keys that you can just take and and run with and open up your spice drawer and your tea cupboard and you know add what you've got, use vegetables you have. You know, I really want to give permission to people to to do it themselves. Yeah, mm-hmm. you mentioned sea vegetables. Can we talk about those for a little mm. bit? Um, I I think there are people who aren't as familiar working with sea vegetables. How do you suggest people incorporate sea vegetables into their cooking? I think nori is a really great place uh-huh, to start because yeah. it's so mild. Right. You know, some people like my mother hate them. Like, oh, really? With like passion. Like you can't even sneak it in for her. Okay. It's too fishy. <laughs> okay. Um, but I think nori is a great start. But then recently yeah. I did a demo with someone using dolls, you know, crumbled up in a zatar. There's a rose doll okay. zatar in there. Okay. And, um, and what are those? Dolls is like a, a sort of pinky purpley colored sea, seaweed that, okay. that, if you toast, you can crumble and it's okay. got a little smoky kind of flavor, not strong. Okay. And some people use it in vegan cooking for smokiness and sort of all sea vegetables kind of have an umami kind of taste. Sure, so it's a right. great thing to add. But I noticed these people had never had it were like, I love this. I'm putting this on my salad. I'm crumbling out of everything now. Right. So I was like, great. So, so they're kind of, I think they're too, they're toasted, they're crispy, they're delicious. Yeah. You know, they don't have a text. The texture can be hard for people, especially like with wakame or something. It's sort of right. slimy. Right. I mean, it just is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But um, you say go for it. I say yeah. go for it. I say go for it and add flavor, you know, like add different things like sure. ginger. I've got a recipe in there or marinate it with some good vinegar. And- uh-huh. Now, you're an advocate for meal prepping. And in the end of your most recent book, you actually have a sort of lengthy section on how to actually implement meal prepping with your recipes and in your house. Do you have meal prep tips that you can sort of share for people? I feel like that can be a challenge for some people too. People either are meal preppers or they're not. And Mm. if they're not, it's hard to make that leap. It is. It's just the only way to eat well. Uh I mean, because we're too busy. We're too busy to cook every night now, you know, or make breakfast every morning. And it just ends up being a rush and stressful and makes you late. Sure. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, it's yes. like, it's annoying. Yeah. So I think, um, thinking about your week a little bit. I mean, I now with a baby, I mean, right. I just, <laughs> Everything's out the window. I'm just telling everyone I, all I do is eat toast. But, <laughs> but, but when I do have like a moment and I plan to, you know, get used to this new life. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. you know, you just sometimes I just say if there's nothing soaking, just soak something. If you don't have brown rice cooked in the fridge, soak some for tomorrow. Uh-huh. Soak some beans. Um, soak some almonds to make almond milk. I, I don't have, to, I mean, I have to like plan to blend when he's a na- napping and it's right. like complicated, but I managed to blend it. I pour it into a, you know, nut milk bag and walk away for five hours. I mean, you know, just in, try and incorporate it into your day, a bit of planning ahead because that nut milk will make plain oatmeal taste so much better. Yeah. You know, and if you've got some frozen berries in the freezer, you could make up a quick compote. I've got a whole lot of sure. compotes that are embarrassingly simple. They are so simple, but making that little time 
is something that can last you for five days and turn your breakfast into sort of like feeling like it's really extravagant and delicious and yeah. it's really still healthy. Yeah. Uh, and it doesn't have to be a porridge, but there's plenty of choices in there. It could just be oatmeal. I just feel like having almond milk, uh, you know, you can make these bircher bowls. They're really right. easy and you can actually make them the morning of because, it, you know, 20 minutes sets, like mix it up when you get up, right? get ready to go, and then it's ready and it's there for four days. So, you know, it's not like a big batch of it, yeah. but, you know, it's just a great habit to get into. Yeah. Yeah. I think especially for people who want to do more whole food cooking that aren't, that can feel sort of like um, sort of aspirational, right? This idea of making things in that way. And so meal prepping is sort of maybe the, the trick to actually implementing some more whole cooking, some yeah. more whole food cooking into your diet if you're not now. Yeah. And I think just think about one meal. Like, is it yeah. breakfast that you really like to have? Right. Or is it lunch at work? Or is it dinner when you get home? Like, think about one. I mean, I feel like if I eat really one really good meal, I'm pretty good with the toast after that. You yeah. Know? Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> Nothing wrong with toast, but, you know, it gets tiring. Nothing wrong with toast, and especially no. with some some nut good or topping. some seed butter, yeah, right? Which love that. You write in the book that you're so passionate about nut and seed butters that you usually tuck them into your luggage when you I've travel. So I'm me. wondering, what, what did you bring on your book tour? Well, I'm such an <laughs> idiot because here I am coming to California where there's amazing nut oh, butters right. in all these health food stores but I bought one that I actually ordered from here. Oh. There's a guy here that makes some, um, he grows brown rice okay. and almonds okay. and he sells it at the Ferry Plaza Farmer's oh, Market and it's um, okay. Massa Organic okay. and it is the best almond butter you can buy. It's okay. toasted and fresh and delicious and mm. it's actually just as good as homemade. Wow. So I didn't bring homemade with me. Okay, I yeah. bought that You're- I feel like such an idiot because I've seen so many great flavors here. But anyway. I'll I still not, eat it. <laughs> I have not tried his. I need to go to the It's really to the fresh and try. good. Okay. Yeah. And you can order it online. Yeah. Okay. Great. Well, we're a show on cookbooks. So I'm wondering if you can tell us if there are authors or books that have been particularly influential to you over the course of your career. I know you mentioned Paul Pitchford's book, um, Healing with Whole Foods is the title, but are there other authors or works that you either have relied on or really learned from or you sort of look to as you produce your own cookbooks? Yeah. Um, I usually go into a bit shutdown mode from outside distraction <laughs> once I've got the idea worked out. Of, for and, your own book. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I feel like combinations can come up. You, you see somewhere and you're like, oh, try that in a nut, like a cocktail combination you could put in a nut butter or, you sure. know what I mean? Like you get all these ideas from everywhere. But I mean, there's certain books. I mean, I love Heidi Swanson. I mean, yeah. she just does, makes beautiful books. Yeah, she's great. They're really lovely. Um, and I'm just trying to think, yeah, Paul Pitchford. I mean, I love these sort of old, you know, really simple macrobiotic books too, just, just for that sort of healing aspect of food and also for sea vegetables there's a lot of you know great books with sea vegetables i love nigel slater i mean i just love Mm -hmm. looking at the pictures of his books yeah um he's great great writer i'm gonna think of things when i leave here and i'm gonna be like oh my god i can't believe i didn't mention that book because i have so many and i have keep they keep it keeps growing the collection but yeah um what do you look for in a good cookbook when you pick one up Probably beautiful photographs. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing. I mean, yeah, that just yeah. and the feeling of the whole package. Right. Oh, I love Six Seasons. I uh, love uh-huh. that book. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah, Joshua McFadden. Yeah, great he's, book. he's great. I mean, I love anything that's vegetable focused, right. honestly. Like, it doesn't matter if there's meat as well or dairy as well, but I just love seeing really exquisite um, photographs of food and just vegetables used in creative ways and and he does that in that book and you know so do a lot of a lot of people now i mean there's so many great books that focused on 
on vegetables because we all want to eat more of them. Right. So. Right. And we've seen some sort of trendy diets like the whole 30 diet or the whole, I don't know if you'd call it a diet, but like the whole 30 concept, Lifestyle, right? Lifestyle. Yeah. Um, sort of take off in recent years. Have you thought about how those things have sort of impacted the broader, maybe like American landscape of home cooks or, or have you factored any of that into your work as well? Do you think more people are sort of tuning into works like yours because of some of these well, fads? probably because yeah. of the gluten-free and uh-huh. there's some grain-free options in right. my book, which I, this, my first book was just so full of grains. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> but, but just, you know, things change. And I, even for myself, I was like, you know, yeah, I don't really want to have it too, maybe necess- not necessarily, definitely not three meals a day, maybe not even two. Maybe I just want to focus one meal around grains uh-huh. and have more protein and vegetables in my diet. Right. Um, but it's it really does come from clients requesting grain-free, gluten-free, not necessarily vegan, using eggs. And that's really, you know, where I get to experiment all the time is people requesting, you know, these, you know, delicious things to add to their food and and healthy snacks and some a way to use nut pulp you know, after making all the nut milks that I would right. make, you know, like, well, what can you do with it? And then right. finally, finally work at something out. And it's like taking me years and years to work out what I want to do with it. Sure. It's actually useful, but there's a cracker recipe in there. So that's grain free. Right. So I think that, yeah, a lot of people are looking for that, although that's not mentioned on the cover, but the gluten free, right. so many people want to be gluten free. Right. Um, and I didn't want it to be like, replacing what I would normally make with gluten-free flours. It's actually like creating a whole new recipe based on millet or, you know, ground up seeds and coconut to be the base, you know? So it's not like I swapped out my favorite muffin recipe or something. I really started from a different place. Yeah. Creating those. Yeah. You're not cauliflower ricing things. Instead, you're cauliflower. No. What, what do we call it? Cauliflower bakes. Um, bakes. Right. <laughs> which, which is sort of like a. I can't believe they let me call it that. I'm really happy Judy didn't. I, I love it. It's a cauliflower <laughs> bake chapter, right? Cauliflower yeah. bakes. And they're sort of like, um, for people who haven't seen the book, it's sort of like a shepherd's pie, sort of, right? It like is. you've got a bottom layer and then the top is like a, a cauliflower casserole, casserole topping. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And I, I just, in Australia, you'd call it a bake and they let right. me. Because right. it sounds like you're having something sweet. Yeah. Like a bake sale. Yeah. Or something. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, I, that's what, yeah. So I, so it really is like a, it's like a shepherd's pie. Yeah. No potato in there. And that again was coming from, you know, requests or experiments going on in other people's kitchens and, um, blending up cauliflower with, yeah, nuts and sure. oil and a bit of nutritional yeast in there. And it just gets this really yummy flavor and you can pour it over anything that's right. what i realized at first i started making it someone who just wanted to eat more greens and delicious different ways not just steamed and sauteed and so we made this and it was sort of like a creamy greens dish okay and then i realized you can pour it over anything yeah and there's four variations there that are all pretty different in flavors but the idea is the base recipe is the topping right yeah. right I love that. Well, let's put you to the challenge. Let's play our little game. Okay. Um, so you've got some cards next to you. And I thought since you structured this book with base recipes and some variants, we could do a couple rounds where we're going to give you a base ingredient and see if you can give us a couple variants on how you might employ that. So I thought we'd make vegetables the star. So um, you can draw a vegetable from the top or the middle, and then you've got flavor or protein options to pair with it. So you can draw a couple flavor or proteins and tell us how you might make a couple variants on that vegetable. How okay. does that sound? That sounds good. Okay. okay. So I picked asparagus. All right. So we have asparagus. Okay. Red pepper flakes. Okay. 
let's do a protein too. Yeah. And see. Satum. Oh my God. Did you take out all the non- I did. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I've whittled down our, our protein stack. To- I'm not a huge Satan fan, but I know that it can be good. Can I, how many other things can I add? You can add as many as you want. This is just your starting okay, point. Okay. What comes to mind straight away is thinly cutting Satan, very thin into strips, probably like half, like the asparagus, but thinner. And then marinating it really well with, um, vinegar and olive oil and garlic and, and the red pepper flakes. Okay. Yes. And then I would like sear it. Yes. Yeah, well cooked. Sort of stir fry the whole thing. Yeah. Stir fried, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, and really cook that well, but it's quite thin. So it's not like chewy and, and then I'd cut the asparagus in half and then in half again lengthways. And so it would be a similar shape to the seitan. And then I'd add that at the end. And probably if I could add some peas or uh, other sort of light spring like vegetables, like okay. some pea shoots or maybe, oh, yeah. maybe even a little bit of radish. Oh, yeah. And then add that and sort of just lightly cook those. Sure. Sounds delicious. So a bit spicy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Tangy. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. Should we keep asparagus as the star and swap out the sides or no, should we do, do a new veggie? Yeah. 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 Oh, kale. Okay. All right. So we've got kale. We're going to pair it with cloves. Oh, shit. Oh. <laughs> cloves and, <laughs> and nuts. Oh. Okay. Nuts. You know, you know what I'd do? I'd actually, I would think about a Thai kind of, I'd think about a coconutty thing. So I'd like cook. Ooh. Onions and sure. garlic and ginger and things. Not too much. Maybe a bit of turmeric. And then I would grind up cloves and add it with coconut milk to that kale. Okay. Like a little pinch of the cloves right. really is an interesting touch when you have those other ginger and yeah. coconut flavors. Yeah, it warms it up a little bit. And the nuts, maybe I'd just like toast some cashews and sprinkle it over it with some like nice steamed white, not whole grain. <laughs> okay. I don't know why. I think this sounds really good with white rice. <laughs> yeah, it, it be does. brown. No, yeah. brown would be good too. Yeah, brown would be good too. Yeah. Ooh, I like that. That sounds really delicious. Okay, let's do one more. Okay. Cabbage. Cabbage. All right. Garlic. Tempeh. Yay, my favorite. All I right. Tempeh. Tempeh's your favorite. So we we're pairing cabbage, tempeh, and, and garlic. Well, I would marinate the tempeh. I mean, I'm not the same as the seitan, but I do like a tamari garlicky marinade for the tempeh. Okay. And then I would pan fry it or bake it. I mean, you could bake it if you had oh, a lot of marinade like sure. I do in my book. I've got a lot of baked tempeh marinades. Yeah. And then the cabbage, I'd probably, I mean, you could either, I'd probably just steam it because I actually love steamed cabbage. You do. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I feel like that's a controversial opinion. I don't know. I feel what like, do you mean? I feel like most people would not come on the show and say, I love steamed cabbage. I know, but that I, sounds so weird. I, I love that you love it. I mean, have you ever, but has anyone had it recently? Probably not. No. No. Because I've done it just when I'm like, oh my God, there's nothing in the fridge and I don't okay. have time and I'm just going to steam because I'm yeah. big on steaming vegetables. Everyone's yes. heard me talk endlessly about that. But yes. It's so, I mean, I'm imagining the best cabbage you can get. I'm right. not imagining some sad thing, <laughs> right. but, but <laughs> I always imagine the best possible version of the vegetable, which right. gets me in trouble in restaurants <laughs> all the time. But, um, but I think, yeah, I think it can be, and especially with like a rich tempeh, which is like pan fried with a really generous amount of oil, uh-huh. um, and the garlic and everything. I think the steamed cabbage would be welcome. Yeah. I think and so. And very too. light and tender. I mean, I don't want to eat roasted with pan fried 
just right. not in the mood, you know? Sure. But right. the, if the oven's on and you're baking the tempeh, yeah, you could roast wedges of cabbage. That's it. delicious. But right. sautéed cabbage is great too. And I've actually got that in the base of um, one of those, on the bottom of one of those cauliflower bakes. Okay. It's yeah. like kale and cabbage and leeks. It's just sure. really yummy. Like I, every time I make it, I think I just want to eat this straight. Yeah. All right. Well, I have a new challenge. I'm going to go home and steam myself some cabbage. Yeah, especially now. Great time of year. Yeah. Well, this was so fun. I love that we that you succeeded in this this little game we put together. And we're so glad to have you, Amy. Thanks so much for coming. Thank you so much, Brian. It's a pleasure. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content and recipes from all of our episodes on saltandspine.com. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. And of course, you can join the Salt and Spine community and support our show at patreon.com backslash saltandspine. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is recorded at the Civic Kitchen Cooking School in San Francisco. The Civic Kitchen offers hands-on classes and events for home cooks. Find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Every weekday, I cover a bunch of stuff. Policies, social issues, news of the day, things you actually give a damn about. All right? But if you're listening to the podcast on the Facebook platform, I need you to make a switch. All right? Because that feature is going away on June 3rd. All right? June 3rd, that feature will go away. So I need you to jump on Spotify or Apple or wherever you get your podcast to make sure that I can still keep bringing you this indisputable content. All right? Let's make it happen. Don't miss an episode of Indisputable. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.